Well, good morning. We are beginning in the book of Daniel this morning. We're going to be, in the first chapter, we're going to be looking at the first nine verses. Um, as we look at these first few verses of the book, we're going to get... Uh, we're going to get a little bit of a history of the book of Daniel, a little bit of background info. We're going to get a glimpse of where we'll be heading as we progress through the book. And we will get a lesson on obedience as we look at the events that take place during this first part of the book of Daniel. So let's read through these first nine verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, the host of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants, and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names, he gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you for speaking to us, Lord, giving us the example of your servants and the wonderful prophecy of this book, Lord, to guide us through our daily lives, to, Lord, warn us of the future, to convict us to obedience. Lord, we thank you and ask that you just, Lord, draw us close to you this morning. Convict our hearts. Lord, we thank you ahead of time. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, a little breakdown of the book of Daniel. The first seven chapters are going to emphasize the the Gentile kingdoms in both history and prophecy. Uh, chapters 8 through 12 are going to emphasize God's plan for Israel in the end times. This was written in 605 B.C. It's shorter than prophetical books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. 
But Daniel is probably the most sweeping and comprehensive revelation recorded by any Old Testament prophets. The, the book of Daniel is really a key book. It is, number one, it is key to understanding the book of Revelation. The two really go hand in hand. Um, all throughout the prophecies of the book of Daniel, and especially in the latter chapters, we see many, many tie-ins with the book of Revelation. And, and so the, the book of Daniel is really amazing. Daniel himself, he, he ranks up there with Moses and Solomon as being one of the three most educated men in the Old Testament. Um, all three of them are very highly educated. Daniel was probably among the most thoroughly trained for this important role in history in which he was going to play, uh, both in, in literature and in God's plan. And because the book of Daniel is so important and so key to biblical prophecy, uh, among the scholarly circles, when you, when you, uh, especially among liberal theologians, Daniel is probably the second most widely attacked book of Scripture, right behind the book of Genesis. It's probably most widely one, and Daniel being second most widely attacked because it is so instrumental to prophecy throughout Scripture. Uh, for example, a lot of you more liberal scholars and theologians will tell you that in around 200 BC, there was a pseudo-Daniel, a second Daniel, who is actually the author of much of this book, because there is simply no way that in 600 BC, Daniel could have known the events that would happen later. See, the thing is, Daniel being written in 600 BC, 605 BC, there are a number of prophecies that were, that were future prophecy to him that we have seen fulfilled perfectly in history already. Prophecies uh, pertaining to the Babylonian Empire, the Greek and Roman Empire, uh, how all those came about were prophesied ahead of time by Daniel. And a lot of you liberal theologians will tell you, well, that can't be. There's no way he would have known these things. So uh, there must have been another pseudo-Daniel around 200 B.C., uh, that, that wrote a lot of this book and the prophecy. That's just one example of many of the attacks they make on the authenticity of this book. And, and it's not uncommon when you get among those theological circles of the well-educated well people that are educated way beyond their intelligence. But Now... Babylon is in modern-day Iraq. That's the geographical location we're looking at. Often throughout history, God has used heathen nations, such as Babylon and all throughout history, to be his arm of judgment to serve his purpose. What we're going to see as we go throughout this book, that, that God sets up nations for a purpose and then tears them down. He sets them up, tears them down. We have to remember, this is God's world. And we are part of God's plan. He makes the rules. He has a plan. We can't change it. 
And so, th and this is part of what he does. He sets up nations. He takes them down. He uses them for a purpose. In this case, Babylon was raised up as the major, the major world power of the time, and to be his judgment against the nation of Israel. God would later destroy Babylon, never to be rebuilt. Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 29 tells us, And the land will tremble and sorrow, for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. Now Jeremiah chapter 51 moving up to verse 64, he prophesies this, Then you shall say, Thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her. And they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Babylon will be destroyed. It's never going to be rebuilt. In fact, we have found, we, we know where the ruins, like I said, it's in modern day Iraq. We know where the ruins of um, the ancient city of Babylon was. Much of it has been unearthed. And in fact, Prior to the Gulf War, Saddam Hussein had begun, had begun trying to rebuild it, and then he was interrupted by the Gulf War, and he was ultimately put out of commission. It never happened. Uh, Babylon was not rebuilt, and it will not be rebuilt. It won't happen. God has said so. It's just not going to rise again. Now, as we, we, we see Shinar mentioned, the land of Shinar mentioned in verse 2. It's simply another name for Babylon. So... Judah had fallen into this moral decay. God had warned a, a century, a hundred years earlier, God had warned that Babylon would destroy Jerusalem and the temple and take the people captive. I'm not going to read through all of this, but I'm going to give you some scripture references, okay? Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 21, Isaiah chapter 39, all of these contain this warning that Babylon would destroy Jerusalem and, and the temple and take people into captivity. Micah chapter 4 verse 10 says very succinctly, Micah 4.10, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in a field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now this was a prophecy that they would be taken into Babylon, and God would redeem them from Babylon, all of which has happened. You know, at this time that Babylon conquered Israel, Judah, the temple, not all of the Jews were worshiping the true God. God's people had been reduced to a faithful remnant. Not so much different in the church today. Not everybody was worshiping the true God. And we need to be vigilant in our efforts to, to stay true to the one true God and understand the God of the Bible is the God whom we serve. The Jesus who is revealed in Scripture is the Jesus we serve. Not a Jesus of our own making. Not a Jesus that conforms to our emotional desires or what we think He should be. Or who we think God should be. Or what we think is just. Or what we think is righteous. But what the Bible 
reveals to us. And we just need to be vigilant to, to, to be sure that we understand that and we worship the God who is revealed to us in the Bible, the true God. Uh, because it's so easy to get drawn away, just like these people had been, and ultimately they were taken into captivity. Now for Nebuchadnezzar to take the items from the temple, he, he conquered Judah, he took items out of the temple, we see, in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So he takes items, valuable items, out of the temple and takes them to the temples of his pagan gods. Now for Nebuchadnezzar to do this, this was the ultimate symbol of conquest. To conquer one nation's God was seen as a symbol of superiority, of your God, if you're the conqueror and you conquer that nation's God, then that's showing that your God is superior to the nation which you just conquered. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand that God, the real God, was in control of this the whole time. He was orchestrating all of these events. God was simply using him for his purpose. And when it was complete... Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would fall forever, never to be revived. You know, our God is so wise and so powerful. He can permit people to make personal choices and still accomplish his purpose within this world. Now, that's a mind-boggling thing. God permits us to make choices but still uses us to accomplish his will. But when he isn't permitted to rule, when we when we say that, you know, you're not going to rule my life, he will overrule you. He is in control. He is in charge. His will will be done. Now the real question is, <laughs> what side of it are you going to be on? You know, are you going to be on the side of his will that's helping to accomplish it or the side that's resisting and, and that's going to be ultimately a painful place to be? But his name will be glorified. He has decreed it. He demands it. And it will happen. You know, one of Nebuchadnezzar's first acts is going to be to grab some of these Hebrew children. There are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, if we just think about it, one, the children are more impressionable. They can be brought in. They can be separated from their old ways. They can be re-educated to be Babylonian. Since most of the older adults are probably going to be too hard-headed to accept the new way of things, He'll just conquer them and brainwash the children. And, and plus, these children would be re-educated into the Babylonian way. They would be given places of, of, of honor and importance inside the Babylonian 
Babylonian Empire. And so the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, would see some of their own people as part of the ruling class, and it would make the transition ultimately that much easier. Because, make no mistake, Nebuchadnezzar saw this as a permanent situation. For God, it was temporary. So they found the best and the brightest. They brought them in to be trained as officers in the king's palace. And this meant, as I was getting to, they had to learn to, to live and think like Babylonians, to adopt to a new land and new customs, learn a new language. And the captors simply attempted to brainwash them through education. And they would grow up being educated, as I said, as Babylonians in the Babylonian way. And before you know it, that would be the only thing they knew. It would ensure their conformity. It would ensure their loyalty. He didn't need the adults. Like I said, he conquered the adults and, and trained the children. It's the way dictators normally work. Uh, Hitler used exactly the same philosophy. And he said, point blank, I don't need the old people. I've got your children. And I can train them. I can educate them. And, you, you know, the old people, he, and he said it, the old people, you, you guys will die off. I've got your children. I don't need you. And this is the mindset of dictators. And we see the same things happening in our society today. Children are being taught to be dependent on the government, to accept increasingly restrictive laws. And before we know it, our kids are going to live in oppression and they're going to think it's normal. And the rest of us are just going to die off into oblivion. Now, parents, of course, can be a counterforce to this. The parents of Daniel and his friends, from the time that they were taken captive, didn't have that option. The king, as we see in verse 5, the king would begin to assume total control over his new subjects, even going so far as to dictate what they eat. Now, understand this. What he was giving them to eat was good food. He was giving them the best of his own provisions. But nonetheless, it was the king who was dictating what they would eat, no matter how good the food was. And he needed to do that in order to take control of every aspect of their lives. He had to capture every corner of their lives. And as we get into verse 6, we see this first mention of these four faithful young men, about 16 years old roughly, that are going to be prominent throughout the book of Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the names we know them by most prominently. And we see these three men introduced here in verse 6. And they, they would come to play such an important role in God's plan. Now, the next step in the king's total control was to give them new names. This is part of erasing their former identities and would pay tribute to the Babylonian gods. Daniel means God is my judge. He changed the name to 
Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect his life. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. Nebuchadnezzar changed his name to Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Mishael means who is godlike. Nebuchadnezzar changed his name to Meshach, which means who is as Aku is. And finally, Azariah means the Lord is my help. But Nebuchadnezzar changed his name to Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo. And so he changed their names, changed his identity, changed their identities to pay homage to his gods. He got to erase everything Jewish out of them. You know, the world tries to do that to us today, to erase every vestige of Christianity out of us as much as they possibly can. It's not so easy as Nebuchadnezzar has it because they don't have total control as Nebuchadnezzar did. But it's, it's still what's attempting to be done. So this, this creates quite a lesson for us and quite a parallel. And it's all part of a systematic process of erasing any former identity. And the truth is, when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're adopted into God's family. That is our identity. And it is God who erases Quite completely, I might add, and, and, and it's a good thing. Our former identity with the world. But the world tries to reclaim that, and they try to erase our identity with God and replace it with the world. This is no different than what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do. He was trying to totally transform them into Babylonians. Look, the world tries to do that to us today. They want us to conform. They want us to fit in. Uh, they, 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 they want to shame Christians into silence. They'd rather not hear what we have to say. And that's fine. Go into your churches and worship. Go into your homes and pray. But leave it there. Don't bring it into the public square. Don't bring it into your workplaces. For goodness sake, don't bring it into government. Stay in your homes, stay in your churches, and everything's going to be fine. That's what they want out of us. And, and to a large part, they, they've succeeded. Now, this is what Nebuchadnezzar, only he was going even farther. He wanted to erase the identity completely and totally of, of any of any connection to, to their God, the God of the Bible. But ultimately he would fail because God had a plan for these four young men and nothing, and nobody could stand in the way. Let me just make that a little bit more personal. I can promise you right now, God has a plan for your life. I don't care who you are sitting in this room. God has a plan for your life. Nothing, nobody can stand in the way of God's plan being fulfilled. Can't happen. Now, you can choose not to follow God, and he'll make sure his will is fulfilled through somebody some way. But God has a plan for you. And if you are a faithful servant of his, nobody's going to stand in your way. Nobody's going to be successful in stopping you from fulfilling God's plan. That's one of the things we're going to see as we go throughout this book. 
Now, by trying to control Daniel's diet, the king would erase another part of Daniel's Jewish roots. It was a very systematic plan. Like I said before, it was good food. Probably the best you could find anywhere, I'm sure. But it didn't conform to the Jewish dietary laws. And Daniel knew this. The meat had almost certainly been offered to idols. That was a big no-no. He wasn't going to touch it. The Babylonians didn't dilute their wine as the Jews did. So certainly it was considered strong drink. And it would have defiled Daniel. Uh, it was commonly the Jews would, would dilute their wine ten to one. Ten parts water, one part wine. It would be very, very weak. It was just made basically a, a purifying agent for the water. Daniel and his, his friends stood very firm against the pressure to conform. Um, even though conformity would have been the easy and the safe thing to do, and we'll see a little bit more about that as the book progresses on. We're going to see many instances where they chose not to follow the easy and the safe route where they chose to follow God instead, even when it meant following or breaking the established law of the land. But they chose to follow God instead. Daniel, we see that Daniel in this instance allowed himself to be transformed by God rather than conform to the world, just like we saw Romans 12, 1 and 2, which I preached on just, just a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, do not be conformed to the standards of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may know is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And this is what Daniel and his friends did. He knew that the king's diet would not have conformed to the Jewish dietary laws. So he choose, chose to do what God commanded, not what the king commanded. Now, here's the thing, and this is something we're going to see about Daniel throughout the book. He didn't make some big, loud scene about this. He was very reasonable in his approach to it. He didn't do it in a challenging way or defiant way. Let me show you. Verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, next week, we're going to see exactly how Daniel did this. But he didn't make this big defiant stand. He stood firm, but he did it by approaching the chief of the eunuchs and and proposing a very reasonable offer to allow him to try this diet for a specific period of time. And then just judge for yourself how, how I look and how healthy we are. So we'll see those details next week. But I just wanted to point out that, you know, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't go picking a fight when he did this. And that's, that's a very important thing. Daniel is a youth, a young man. He made a serious commitment under very potentially dangerous circumstances. And he made up his mind not to participate in anything that would defile him. What an example that is. He's a young man. He was about 16 years old. This is a testament to his upbringing up to that point. 
Because now, at this point, he'd been separated from his family. He didn't have them to help him and to strengthen him anymore. But that's a testament to his upbringing up to that point. Daniel obviously needed law. And he probably, from a very young age, is, you know, it's never too young to start. Never. It's so important to instill godly values and the word of God into our children when they're young because we never know when they're going to be placed in a faith-testing situation. It can happen at any time, at any age, just like it did with Daniel and his friends. You know, God was the one pulling all the strings. And, but because what we're going to see is because of Daniel's obedience, God brought him into favor with the eunuch. There was a trust that developed. That's very, very important. God honored Daniel's trust in him and Daniel's allegiance to him because he honors those who honor him. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30 says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Daniel and his friends honored him, and he honored them. We're going to see this all throughout the book. What a testament to that faithful obedience. Uh, and we can tell because of this that it was an obedience of love and devotion, not simply duty. Uh, God knows our hearts. So the question is, the, now that, that was a lot of background, a lot of history, and we're going to get more into really into things starting next week. But there is a good lesson here in obedience. Now that we know what was taking place and what had happened at this point, do you honor God by your behavior? Or do you take the safe route and conform to the world? That's so easy to do. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. Back to the good old book of James, chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Can't serve two masters. Cannot do it. One of the things that we'll learn from Daniel is that we have a choice, and this is what I want you to take with you today. The choice is this. You can purpose in your heart to follow God, or you can purpose in your heart to follow the world. There's no middle ground. It's, it's either or. There's no gray area there. It's either or. So that choice is it. And that's what I want you to take with you today. You can purpose in your heart to follow God or you can purpose in your heart to follow the world. And that is the essence of every choice we make in this life. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That tells us very pointedly, very simply, that 
we must choose to follow him. Because there is no other way to the Father. And if you don't choose to follow him, then by default, you are following the world. So if you're not with me, if you're not helping me gather, then you're scattering. If you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're not part of his family, you are part, by default, part of Satan's family. That's just how simple it is. So that's the choice we have with us today. Would you pray with me as we go into the invitation?